I want to begin with a story, and if we could get the first slide up. So this uh, picture, see that? See that? That's the Lewis and Clark Bridge. You guys know where that's at? So that's, that's in between Longview, Washington, and Rainier, Oregon. And that circle is a single wide trailer, and that is the trailer that I lived in uh, between first and second grade. Uh, Lewis and Clark Bridge, at the time of its completion in 1930, was the largest cantilever bridge in America. It's massive. A bunch of people died building it. Uh, but we lived literally in the shadow of that bridge. My mom had married this man uh, that she had met at Trojan, the nuclear plant. He was a security guard. Uh, she fell fast in love, and we uh, found ourselves, my brother and I and my mom, uh, a part of a new family, and this was at the beginning of first grade. And I actually have almost zero memories of this man. He was relatively absent. My mom said he was absent because he was one of those men who, the moment he was married, was disinterested with the woman he was with and was immediately seeking other women. But I want to share with you a story from the last night at that trailer. So it's the witching hour, probably about midnight, and the trailer was sitting in the shadow of the bridge in the darkness of that claustrophobic hall just outside the bedroom wall where my brother and I were hiding under the bunk bed as we listened to our mom scream at that face who had broken her heart. He had been sleeping with an 18-year-old, unbeknownst to my mother. We heard yelling and scuffling and a crash against the wall, and the smell of fear was rising from our racing hearts in the dark of that room, and so real that I can taste its metallic presence even to this day, 39 years later. I thought he had killed her. I knew it. It all had gone silent, and I couldn't breathe, and I thought to myself, I can't survive without her. I remember whispering in my brother's ears, please, mama, don't be dead, don't be dead. And my brother trembled in my arms, and time had stilled, and each agonizing second was a lifetime lived, and I was ancient in a moment. As the door flew open, I closed my eyes, my head bowed in existential dread. I'm reminded of that verse, and after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice, but this voice was my mom's voice. She said, Joshua, Jared, get dressed. Beneath the moon, we moved through the field, the warmth of my mother's hand and the voice reassuring us as we began our pilgrimage across that cantilever bridge. And the inky river far below, the narrow sidewalk, the creaking steel, the wind, the shaking from the occasional semi carrying loads of fresh cut lumber, and the blinding headlights of oncoming cars reminding us that heaven and hell hung in the balance. But as frightening as the journey seemed, I could not shake a strange sense of peace, even joy, with the unknown of the night. This was an exodus toward at least a momentary salvation. My mother speaking those comforting words, don't be afraid, I am with you. Frederick Beekner, in his book, Secrets in the Dark, really it's a collection of his sermons, said the world and all of us in it are half in love with our own destruction and thus mad. 
The world and all of us in it are hungry to devour each other and ourselves and thus lost. And darkness is meant to suggest a world where nobody can see very well, either themselves or each other, or where they're heading, or even where they're standing at that moment. If darkness is meant to convey a sense of uncertainty, of being lost, of being afraid, if darkness suggests conflict, then we live in a world that knows much about darkness. See, I, I share that story with you about my childhood because in the midst of tremendous darkness and the sheer terror of being an eight-year-old boy with his, uh, with his younger brother listening to your mom enter into a conflict with a man that you never actually felt like you knew to begin with, uh, only to hear that relieving voice, almost like a small light, in a dark space. Isn't it amazing that a candle flame can actually illuminate an entire dark room? And that's what my mom's voice was in that moment of Joshua, Jared, get dressed. And to have her be with us as we walked across that terrifying bridge that's so high and the, in the, the, the feelings and all of the sensations and the adrenaline, but to know that my mom was there and, and for her to speak those words almost identical to the words of Jesus, at least in my memory, that's what I remember her saying, I'm with you. And I believe that this is, for me, a picture, one of those moments, what I like to refer to as pinpoints of grace, treasures in darkness. The moments when God shows up in, in the dark space of our lives in a, in a moment of great insecurity and fear and trauma and, and reminds us that there is someone with us, someone for us, someone who loves us with an everlasting love. My mom became that pinpoint of grace, that intersection of grace for me in that moment. And I believe that Frederick Beekner's proclamation about the darkness of the world, nobody would argue with that. Look at the radical, massive popularity of the film that just came out, Joker, which describes the insanity of our world, the, the ways that we produce our own monsters, the abilities that we have to hurt one another, uh, the abilities that we have to create such chaos, which is why we need to be able to hear, as a community of faith, that still soft voice that reminds us that there is one who created us for something more, who wants to lead us out of the darkness into the light, but really what he wants to do is actually lead us into the darkness so that we can be a light. This is the power of this passage that we have before us in John. If we could look at John chapter 13, we're gonna begin in verse 36. And if you guys remember the story, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he is about to give them their most profound teaching. He just did the whole, the whole um, feet washing ceremony in which he shows us a picture of agape love. It is a love that stoops down and meets people in their brokenness. It's not a love that takes you inward into self-discovery, that's eros, that's self-regarding love. No, it's agape love, a love that, that is a love that flows uh, out of a sacrificial giving of oneself away. 
But Jesus tells the disciples something that immediately creates for them a dark night of the soul, and that is that he's about to leave them. And he says here, he goes, where I am going, you cannot come. But then he follows it up. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what they're going to discover is that they don't understand why he's leaving, but he's about to tell them that it's good that he leaves because when he leaves, he will send to them another helper, the spirit of truth. He is looking through the cross, through Calvary, this place in which they are going to think that he has left them for good, that he has placed them in total darkness because Jesus himself, we are told, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And what we saw in God's incredible act of sacrificial love is that Jesus on the cross of Calvary actually entered into the worst darkness of the world. He experienced literally hell for us that death might be transformed into the very means by which we enter into his resurrection life. But they didn't understand that. And what he's pointing to in regards to their witness is he's saying, you must begin to live according to this new commandment. In other words, according to this new way. He is that way, and that is the gospel. That this new commandment, that we, the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another, our ability to actually live in the power of agape love, to be like my mom was in that moment, to be that kind of hand and voice of comfort that walks with people in very scary places. They didn't understand that though at this moment. I always like to say that this picture of Jesus' command for us to love one another is actually the first and most important component of what it means to be an evangelistic community, a community that witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. We spend so much time talking about how to share the gospel one-on-one, we forget that the most powerful way that the gospel is preached is when God's people actually treat each other with the dignity that God intended for us to have as human beings made in his image that we live sacrificially, outwardly for the other, that our, our journey is not esoteric, it's exoteric, that the life of Christ becomes ours only as we move out into his world that he is reconciling to himself through his good news by the power of his spirit. And this is why we as a church must understand the way of love. The reason I shared that powerful story about my childhood is because my mom's voice was so fascinating is the yelling and the screaming in the hallway and the violence and the terror. That is the reality of our world. It is loud, it is bombastic, it is violent, it is deafening. But my mom's voice was the still soft voice for she came in in this gentle space and said, I'm with you, come with me. And what we have to learn how to do is to enter into the little ways of love rather than the loudness of violence and darkness that our world is continually placing at our feet. How do we engage that darkness? It's actually through the still soft voice, attuning our hearts to it and becoming conduits of it. This is grace. 1 Corinthians 13, verses seven and eight gives us a picture of the very love that Jesus reveals to us through the cross and demands of us as conduits of that grace as we become empowered by the Spirit. 
And that is that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Or love, love lasts. Or love never rests. It's the one thing that's always at work. It doesn't take Sabbath. Love doesn't. Love continues. So here is what I want us to consider as we move forward into Jesus' teaching is how does this definition of love teach us the way of Jesus, the way of his love, and how do we become that still, soft voice of comfort as we carry the gospel and act out the little ways of love in a loud and outrageous and bombastic and violent world? And I think that Jesus gives us the picture. And first we see here that love bears and believes all things. Because look what happens. He tells him this is what you need to live like. This is what you need to do. This is the new commandment. But all they're thinking about is, you just told us you're leaving us. That's all they're thinking about. The 11th commandment doesn't come back to them until after he's dead and risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and they've been given the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden they become the embodiment of that new commandment. But look here, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. In other words, Jesus is looking already to the cross, and he said, this is the place that I go alone. But Peter said to him, him acting much like the world, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then look, this is where the chapter breaks do great damage to the narrative. You will deny me three times, Peter, but let not your heart be troubled. In other words, this is the whole reason I'm going where you can't go. Peter, let not your heart be troubled because I have you covered is essentially what he's saying. Believe in God, believe also in me. This particular passage reveals to us in perfect clarity the difference between religion and the gospel. Peter represents to us here that religious impulse. I must prove my worth to God. I want to show Jesus that I'm worthy of being his disciple. I want to show him that I'm willing to do whatever he did. And Jesus actually does the most painful thing possible because of how much he loves Peter. Notice this this incredible statement. They're like, Peter's in panic. Lord, where are you going? So that's the first thing is this, this reality of fear. And fear sinks us. And this is where we see Jesus giving us a reflection of a love that bears. That word bear in the Greek literally means to be watertight. Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, I am able to bear something that you can never bear. I can keep in what is mine, which is you, and I can keep out that which would try to take you away from me. I can alone take into myself sin in such a way that it is once and for all dealt with, and I can keep out the enemy of this world that is going to try to continually 
snatch you away from me. In other words, I alone can bear the responsibility that none of you could ever bear in your own strength. You are utterly impotent when it comes to helping me with your salvation. So when they want to know where he's going, and when, when Peter says, I will, and he's just, he's only speaking what everyone else is thinking. They're just all jealous that Peter, you know, was bold enough to tell him that he would lay down his life. But Peter becomes the first example of the absolute foolishness that exists within every one of our hearts when we think that there must be something about us that made Jesus reach into our lives, that we can actually be, participate in our own redemption somehow, but we forget that the love of God is truly, as Paul Zoll calls it, the one-way love of God. It is pure gift. It is a love that is watertight. It fends off and repels that which is not of love's kind and shelters and protects that which, is it, which it owns and possesses, which is us. And Jesus alone can provide that, but this is what also can create within us the sinking reality that comes from fear, and this is why Jesus wants to speak to you and I. Listen, you came today thinking, I blew it. I did things I shouldn't have done last night. I, 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 I got like, like Josh, I, I tried to run over a cyclist on the way to church. Whatever it is, you, there's a million things that create guilt and shame. Jesus came to deal with guilt and shame once and for all on the cross. What he comes to bring now is conviction that is meant to bring restoration. It's conviction so that he can bring comfort. But the comfort doesn't feel like comfort often until, we've, until we recognize that we can't bear the weight, but we also can no longer afford to bury it either. That Jesus draws near to us in the light is a light that reveals. Our tendency is to push down our fears, burying them in faulty ideologies that at best help us push through the misery but hardly provide us with any lasting joy or satisfaction. We may, we may have ways of quieting our nerves but not quieting our hearts. We postpone our problems but we almost never solve them. And this is why the words of Jesus, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest is so important. The deepest need in the church today is to be a conduit of that peace which surpasses understanding because we live in an anxious world. And do we recognize that Jesus didn't simply come to bring relief from our anxiety, he came to bring life to our dead bodies. And the good news is if you are dead, from the darkness of this world, as Robert Farrar Capone said, you're Jesus' cup of tea. If you're a sinner, you're the very person that Jesus came for. If you're dead, that's what he wants to be around because he loves to bring dead things back to life. The power of the gospel is God's unbelievable love, a love that bears all things and believes all things. And this love can't be manifested in us until we, until we receive it fully into our lives. The greatest need in the world, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is a quiet heart. We've lost our way because we have forgotten that life is terminal. But that's why we need the resurrection life of Christ. 
See, there is death that leads to more deaths, but the gospel, the upside down kingdom of Jesus, is a death that leads to life. It's what I refer to as the good death. And I think that this is what Paul says when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is why we need to not only not be troubled, but we need to cast our faith. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, I am telling you right now that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, that I and the Father are one. What he's gonna go on to say is that he is, he is the only way. I am the door. We always say the narrowness of of our message, the exclusivity of Christ's claims is what opens us up to the vastness of God's love. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he is saying is, I am the way to God. I am the truth about God. I am the very life of God. We're told that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God in human flesh. God who has come down into the human experience. God who says, no matter how deep your sin goes, my love goes deeper still. And this is why he says, put your faith in me. And this is why we are told in the epistles that there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. That every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. And let me just remind you that it is only the name of Jesus that makes people really uncomfortable. In a city like Portland that's hyper-spiritual, you can talk about God all day long. Nobody's offended. Most people believe in some kind of God. There's not a lot of atheists out there. There's a lot of agnostic people. But there is a lot of spiritual people, and, and all you need to go to is any new age shop in Portland, and you'll see hundreds of books on Jesus as either an enlightened one among many, maybe even a God among many, because you yourselves can be gods as well. But what if Jesus says, no, I am alone the way. My statements are so exclusive that I reject being placed on the shelf with other supposed gods. If every key opens the door to the house, the house is not safe. Jesus says, I'm the way. I am the entrance. And this is the thing that eradicates fear is knowing that God is not an unknowable force, but he is a personality who invites us into eternal life. And this is eternal life, said Christ, that they may know you, the living living God and Jesus, your son whom you have sent. Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Love bears all things. Jesus says, I alone can bear what you will never be able to bear, Peter. The love of Christ reveals Peter's impotence, but immediately follows it up with an invitation to simply trust him. And this is why we say faith is simply yes to Jesus. And every day for us as believers, we exercise that yes of love. We say yes to him. We respond to his drawing. We have responded to that command that he gave to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus couldn't have responded unless he, uh, when he was dead. Jesus brought him a life, but then he had to step out. He has brought life to us, but we need to daily say yes to his yes which means that he is Lord and we are not. It means it's a continual return into the good death so that we can live in the power of his resurrection life. Believe in God, 11.6, but without faith, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Remember what, uh, I love what Karl Barth says about faith. He says, faith is allowing Jesus Christ to be 
for you, in you, and through you what you cannot be for yourself. Major Ian Thomas defined it as that faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you with the adequacy of Christ. That our faith is not simply in who Jesus is or even necessarily what he said, but what he did. And this is why we're not preaching Christ unless we're also preaching the cross because we can't talk about resurrection without insinuating that he was first dead. And this is why Paul puts the cross at the center of the Christian message. And this is why we need to stop identifying with what we are troubled by and start to identify and trust in Christ. Isn't it interesting that that's one of the fundamental problems? We constantly identify with what breaks us down. It's what, it's what even is my, uh, my frustrations with, uh, with the limitations of personality tests. We, we, we want to identify with those more than we want to identify with Jesus. I'm like, I don't really care what type I am. As long as Christ is in control, I'm hoping that I'm reflecting him more than any particular type that I am. So I don't care if I'm on the disc test, a dominant and an influencer, because that needs to come under the control of Jesus. And I don't care on the Meyer Briggs whether I'm an introverted, extroverted something or another, or I'm one of nine types, there's gotta be more than that. All I know is that Jesus is the singular type that should be identifying our lives and we're not gonna fully become anything that we are called to be without his full identification over our lives as we yield to him. Why have we replaced him with our, I don't, I'm not that impressed with myself. I don't wanna examine myself that deeply. Analysis is, of self is the very cause of paralysis, of being. The loss of our ability to enter into the brokenness of the world is this constant, what I refer to as Gnostic navel-gazing in the church, it's disgusting. Just a little side thought. <laughs> Love hopes and endures all things. John chapter 14, verses two through four. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, have I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now here's the thing, Jesus is clearly looking forward, and this shows the beauty of a love that hopes. Hope is that perfect balance, that symmetry between, in scripture, it's not like the hope in, in our modern culture, which is, I hope, the Blazers win, because they won't. So you, they, I mean they will, which causes hope, and then they fail, because it's not the same kind of hope that the scripture puts forth. Uh, so it's, it's, that's all chance, right? No, no, we are talking about a hope that is a perfect blend of expectation and desire. I desire to be with Christ where Christ is, and I expect to be there. I, I just read this fascinating story by Ted Chiang uh, in, in what he is exploring. Actually, if you guys have ever seen the movie Arrival, uh, his, that, that movie was based off of his short story, and that was the, is the concept or the question of how does time actually work, and is it possible to remember one's future? So really, that, even that statement will mess with your head, but 
You remember the main character is, learns this language, this alien language that allows her, it's a language that sits outside of time that actually opens up an understanding of past and future. And, and I was thinking about it, in terms of, of our knowledge as Christians, the scripture actually gives us a memory of the future that's coming. That Jesus says, lo, I am with you now and always to the end of the age, and we know where the story ends. We don't know the details on how it's going to end. All we know is Jesus said, follow me, and we trust and believe that we know the end of the story already, which is why we have a hope that does not disappoint. Because our hope is in something that is certain, and the most powerful concept of, of, in the scriptures is that faith and hope themselves will no longer be necessary when the object of our faith and hope is before us. Jesus, that's why it says, the faith, hope, and love. Abide in these, but the greatest of these is love. Because love is the one thing that never rests. One thing, love is the one thing that never ends. And Jesus said, listen, I am going to prepare a place for you. And this is the hope of the Christian life, is that there will be, just as Jesus rose from the dead, there will be a resurrection unto life for those that have trusted in, in him and unto judgment, as Jesus himself said, for those that rejected his gospel. And this is why we have to live with an urgency that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's why I always say, never, never gloat in election. God chose you that through you he might reach everybody. This is why the Christian life can't be an inward, internal obsession. It's an outward journey into the darkness of the world that we might bring light to it. God's saving love, the beauty of the gospel. And so this hope Jesus puts before us, but notice the hope is directly connected to this love hopes all things, but it also endures all things because he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And I believe here we have a statement that encompasses the gospel itself because the preparation of the place requires the cross, which is the door of hope, is that he prepares a place for us, not only in eternity with him, but he also prepares a place for us on the cross. For if anyone wants to be my disciple, they are to pick up, and it's not his cross, it's our own cross. It's the things that we need to die to. There is a death that is involved in being a follower of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, here, I give you life eternal, accept that, but, then do what you want. No, he says, he says, trust me, faith is not believing that I exist. That's what James said, the demons believe that. Faith is trusting your life, putting your life on his saving work, on the person of Christ, his atoning work, his life, his death, his resurrection, which qualifies us now for his life as we enter into his death. This is even the picture of baptism. We die with him and we reemerge as a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, all things are new. Jesus says, he says, count the cost. To be his disciple, it, what, is it, what will it cost you to follow Jesus? The only honest question that we can ever give to anyone truly in seeking with any kind of sincerity is it will cost you everything. It's not work. Grace is never cheap, but it is always free. But the reception of that grace into our lives 
and the identification with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior will bring the arrows of a world that we are told is under the sway of the wicked one. Do you know that we can't be about witness and the proclamation of the gospel and think that we're gonna come out of that without any suffering? And the power of the gospel is God's ability to actually take suffering and bring beauty out of it. Darcy and I were out to dinner last night with, with, uh, with Kurt and Julie, and we were just talking about our life, and Darcy was sharing just the painful reality of losing her brother to AIDS, and, and to be able to speak out those stories, and to even, have, for us to be able to enter into that suffering, even now, it's almost like time stops, and those things so shape us, so mark us, even my ability to share a story from when I'm seven and eight, these things affect us, and they hurt us deeply, but God has the ability to take those narratives and actually bring redemptive reality through them. It actually, it actually creates a, a depth of soul that is necessary. That's why I always say that if you don't taste death in this life, you will never be prepared for life after death. We need to be a people that are shaped by the suffering of this world, which actually produces joy when it's, when it's because of our identification with Jesus. Now there is suffering that comes from our avoidance of Jesus, and Jesus, when he says, do not worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, there's lots of things that you should worry about when you are purposefully running from the one who is life. Because he loves you too much to let you go. And this is why I always say that, that the most miserable people in life are people that know the truth but reject living according to it. Because to actually come into a regenerative state, to be born again into the gospel of truth and to experience the saving life of Jesus and then go prodigal, it's like, listen, when you were dead in your sin, you could just enjoy sin. Once you become born again, then you're a miserable sinner. You're like, I'll, I'm just gonna sin to show that I'm not owned by Jesus, but how come all your other friends who are dead are enjoying themselves and you hate your life? That's the reality. No one can escape the love, the immovable reality of God's love, it will burn away everything that is unlovely in the beloved. And I think that this reality here is that Jesus says, listen, love hopes and it endures all things. Jesus says, I am going to the cross. That is the gateway to the future home. It, not only for me, but it's also your future. You want to enter into his life. He says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the power of the gospel. Love hopes and endures all things. Finally, love never fails. Look at this. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Notice, He's, and he says, just show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us is what, what they go on to say. And he goes, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. And I love it. He goes on into verse 23. He says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and her and make our home with them, within them. The power of the gospel is not only are we identified in Christ, we become baptized into a new family, into a new identity, 
but by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the whole thrust of Jesus' teachings in John 14, 15, um, and 16, which we'll consider next week in the final I am statement when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, that what gives life to the branches is actually the Holy Spirit, who is the, is the spirit of truth. And even here, how does God come to dwell within us? We are the very temple of God. That our ability to live in the way of Jesus' love is by his very presence in our lives. And maybe for some of you today, that that experience of Jesus as the way to God, the truth about God, and the very life of God is not fully settled into your experience because you have never yielded to his spirit. You've trusted in him enough to become born again, but not enough to actually experience transformation in a way that's, that's revolutionized your life. And that never comes until there's submission. It, it, there's no, there is no crown without the cross. I would argue there's really no personal relationship with Jesus without the cross. Love never fails, it never ends. That word in the Greek, never ends, literally means to fall down. The love of Christ, it never, it never gets weary. It never literally falls down. It's something that you can rest your life upon because it itself never rests. Because you can't separate God's love from God himself. Every good gift that God gives is directly connected to himself. Everything he reveals to us about himself and offers to us is literally his presence. God doesn't give gifts to his children. He gives himself, which is the gift that actually sustains all other gifts. It's when he becomes the center that we're able to actually enter into the world and even enjoy it appropriately because there is a reordering or a reorganizing of our heart's affections. You see, when we allow the darkness of the world to be the primary voice in our lives, all that does is turn us inward and create despair, anxiety, depression, loneliness. We have come with an answer because we have had our lives turned inside out. Our trust in Christ has put Christ in us who then leads us out into the world where we enter into his death so that we can bring people his life. And that's where we find value and that's where we find meaning and that's when we can actually enjoy the things of the world with an open hand. Because we're a royal priesthood and what were the priests told? They shall have no portion in the land because the Lord their God is their portion. That's why George MacDonald says the one who has Jesus has everything. So, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And his life is a love that lasts. It never fails. See, every day, we must be reminded, Jesus did not come to help us achieve our dreams, but to bring life to our dead bodies. He himself in the Gospel of John in chapter one, verse 51, interpreted the dream of Jacob's ladder, where Jacob saw a ladder from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending upon it. And there shows this, this gulf that cannot, be, that cannot be achieved in man's effort. We can't, as Peter tried to do, we can't follow Jesus into his way apart from his life in us. And the way is not a ladder up to heaven 
No, Jesus said, I am the ladder in John chapter one, verse 51. He says, you will see even greater things than these for you will see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. And that word never appears again in scripture after Genesis 28 because there is no ladder to heaven, which is what every religion offers. And all ladders do is produce exhaustion. Man tried to build a, build a tower to God and it failed and ended up in a confusion of language and a breakdown of relationships. No, Jesus comes to restore the relationships in three directions. God has come down to us. This is the gospel. That real joy and peace is found in acceptance of his love in our impotence. It's like me as a little boy under the bed with my brother, completely incapable of doing anything to help the situation, in darkness, alone, and scared. And my mom, like the voice of Jesus, broke into the silence and the darkness of the room and took us by our hands and let us out. She gave the command, put your clothes on, and we grabbed her hand and we held on for dear life. And then she reminded us all the way across the dark bridge and that terrifying river, the Columbia, really terrifying on that bridge, it really is. I am with you, I'll never leave you. The real joy and peace is found in acceptance of his love and our impotence, his radical grace meeting us in our crippling brokenness. His gospel is down to earth. This good news that he has come to free us from the need to be freed from the mess of existence. Instead, we have the power to follow him into his death and there we find our door of hope and the way of love. It's Jesus every time. Let us accept him as our salvation, as our friend, as our source, as the door, the path, the guide, and the goal. Jesus is everything, and anything plus Jesus really comes to nothing. So let us give our lives fully to him, amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the power of the gospel and its ability to transform our lives. We ask once again, right now, that you would bring transformation to our broken lives and bodies and minds. We are like the disciples, walking messes, a people that are marked by perpetual mixture that even in our greatest moments of spirit empowerment, we still are mixture. And this is why we need to again and again allow your gospel to penetrate into those areas that we still unfortunately keep hidden. And we hear your gentle voice that calls us out of the dark, that calls us out from beneath the beds where we tremble in fear and you remind us that you're with us and that you're for us and that you'll love us and that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. That you remind us that you have already prepared the place and that your death was once and for all and that sin and death shall not have dominion over us because you, the sinless Lamb of God, you who knew no sin became sin, that we in you might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. We accept it and we recognize your saving voice. For you say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them by name. 
I call them and they follow me. May every one of you know today that Jesus is calling you by name. Even if you don't know him yet, you've not trusted him, the scripture declares that he loves the world, which means he loves you. That on your worst day, he's crazy about you. And for the believer who's drifted from him, he loves you. For the sinner who's still dead, he says, I love you, come alive in me. For all of us, he invites us again and again to simply say yes to his yes and trust him with our lives. And so we declare together, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.